dedicated to each and every one of you who appreciate a great glass of wine. You know what I mean? It's Monday. Let's raise a glass to the beginning of another week. It's time to unscrew, uncork, or saber a bottle. And let's begin exploring the wine glass. Today, we virtually travel to Napa, California with Chuck McCann of McCann Family Cellars. The winery was established in 2014 and exclusively produces Rhone varietals. Join us as we discuss Chuck's love of wine at an early age, what is so special about Rhone varieties, and how McCann Family Cellars is truly a family-run business. If you enjoy exploring the wine glass, I'd appreciate you giving me some love by taking two minutes out of your day to swipe, to rate, and review on whatever app you are listening on. It is the best way to support the show. Also, if you'd like to keep up on everything Exploring the Wine Glass, head over to exploringthewineglass.com and sign up for the newsletter. Slancha. I want a nice glass right now. Hey everybody, I'm Lori Budd, a UC Davis winemaking program, someday service, champagne specialist, and WSET level 2 graduate. You can find Exploring the Wine Glass on all the socials as well as your favorite podcast catchers. If you haven't subscribed yet, now's the perfect time to swipe, subscribe, rate, and review. I promise I'll never tell you what to drink, but I'll always share what's in my glass. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Allure of the Poor, sponsored by Dracita Wines. I am your host, Lori, of Exploring the Wine Glass, and we are here today with Chuck McCann of McCann Family Wineries. So welcome, Chuck. Thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. And so the wine of the day is one of my favorite varietals is Viognier. So when we start getting into the wine, which won't be too long because I'm a little thirsty, we're going to be talking about this 2021 Viognier from Sonoma County. So thank you for sending that over. I am excited to try it. It's all over here ready for my first sip. Um, my pleasure. <laughs> but before we get into it, I want to talk, get a little bit into the McCann um, uh, and am I saying it correctly, McCann? You are. Yeah, okay. you are. Okay. Yeah, we had a, uh, we actually had a name, uh, spelling change like a hundred years ago, I think. There was a, uh, there was an A between the H and the N. And, oh, so um, McCann. The so Scottish? Yeah, I guess. No, I, no, no, it's definitely Irish. Um, oh, okay. I honestly don't know the genesis of I, I don't know what it was pronounced like back then and why they changed the spelling or any of any of that stuff. So no one no one thought to ask while those people were alive. So it's a <laughs> mystery, a mystery for, for us surviving McCann's for sure. Was it when they came over? Because I know no, a lot uh, of people, they were already here. No, it was after. Oh, OK, it was after. Yeah. Because a lot of quite, names quite got bit, changed. Quite a bit after, yeah. Okay. A lot of names got changed when people came over, right? They're like, ah, we're not writing that out. We're just going to do this. <laughs> yeah, no, it wasn't. It was on purpose. It was not okay. a uh, Ellis Island clerical error. Oh, oh, that's, that's, you, I would be diving deep into just try to figure that out, you know, with all the spare time I'm sure you have, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> So McCann Family Winery, uh, actually, from what I understand, really is the birth child of your mom having a little bit of empty nest syndrome, right? You went away. She wanted she wanted to start this winery. Well, yeah, it was. I mean, not not really. They both my parents um, had listened to me kind of dream about opening up a wine brand or starting a wine brand for, oh, I don't know, since since definitely 18 years old. So uh, by the time we started it in 2014, I was 25. So like seven years. And um, they had seen enough of my own personal growth in the wine industry at that point. And um, kind of the story is that they came into a little bit of money. My dad sold his, uh, his ski boat. It, he wasn't using it, sold it. And we took that cash and started the wine brand with it. But yeah, I mean, it is, it is, I don't know about an empty nest syndrome, but definitely we spend more time together now that we have a business than we ever did, um, after <laughs> I moved out. So I, I guess, I guess so. <laughs> and I read you, you knew, 
from like 15 or you just said like 18 that you wanted to be a winemaker. So your, your mom was in the wine industry prior to, yeah. okay. So you just fell in love with, with the industry. Yeah. So in my, uh, when I was a very young child, my mom worked in the export department at Wentz Vineyards. So I would have been maybe, this would have been like 92 to 2000. So I would have been, you know, three to 11 kind of thing. And, um, she left the wine industry to spend a little more time uh, closer to home. She was traveling a lot. So she got a different job where she didn't have to travel. And I, I mean, I was a little kid. I had no concept of what a career was, what people did for a living, why people did anything for a living at that time. But then when it got to be about high school time, I really started to, those memories started to kind of come back a little bit and I had spent a little bit of time with her at Wenty in her office and taking, you know, taking walks with their cellar master, um, Mark Claren through their, through their gigantic winery. Um, and those memories kind of flooded back and influenced me, I guess, a little bit, but yeah, since 15 or 16, I've pretty much known that I've wanted to be a winemaker. And so where, where were you growing up? In uh, just north of Modesto. So a little tiny almond farming community called Ripon. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Drive past C- it. Central Valley. Okay. We drive past it. So. Yeah. So were you the only person who wanted to be a winemaker of your friends? Only person who was talking about it. I went to high school with the two McManus, uh, McManus children, uh, Tanya and Justin, their, their parents, own McManus family vineyards, you'll see they make a bunch of wine. You'll see their wine all over the place. So apart from them, I don't remember anybody else talking about it in my, not necessarily my graduating class, but in like plus or minus a couple of years, there have been other winemakers that have come out of Ripon High School, but uh, not many, not many. It was definitely not a career that anyone really talked about. And so when you were that age, when you just decided you were going to be a winemaker, you're you're walking through the winery and stuff. So you actually did get a back, you know, the behind the scenes look, because I think a lot of people who were like, oh, winemaking, it's so romantic. It's so awesome. You get to drink wine all the time. And that's really not the story behind it. But you got to see some behind the scenes. Did Were you at that age? Did you notice those behind the scenes stuff? The the incessant cleaning the <laughs> no no i was so young i mean i was like i said not even really a teenager when my mom was working there um they i did notice that these were hardworking people so kind of right from the beginning i knew that wine making was not like a romanticized career um these are these are people who are sweating for a living you know they it's a manual labor job especially for the first 10 to 15 years of doing it. And, um, but no, I did not, I, I didn't know what I was looking at really. I just saw people working hard and having a good time doing it. Well, that's always good. That's always good. Yeah. And then, so now you went, you went to college, you went to Cal Poly? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you went to, you went to Cal Poly for enology? Yeah. Uh, and so how was, how was that, like that, that program for you? Did it open your eyes? Did you think, yeah, this is pretty much what, or did you go, whoa, I'm not so sure I want to do this anymore or yeah, this I'm right on. No, uh, college was fun. I chose uh, Cal Poly, not just because of the wine program, but because of the location. And um, I had a really good time in college. I learned a lot. Um, we made wine for the school in an old ag annex building. It was like a big blue garage, like a kind of like an oversized garage. And they installed a, uh, a walk-in cooler to store. I, th- I think we had probably 12 barrels in there and, uh, I have not seen it yet, but I heard that Cal Poly's winery is now open. It's a professional fancy oh, wow. looking winery. So I'm, I'm, I'm ready to get down there to go check it out, but. No, Cal Poly was awesome. Had a really good time. The program officially was pretty new. The uh, Poly's put out winemakers for years and years and years, but they always had uh, fermentation science degrees or fruit science degrees or some kind of a related chemistry 
Um, and then when I got there in 2007, they had, to my my understanding was they had just made it an official major. Okay. So with, within the past, within a couple of years of me arriving there. So in that respect, it was pretty new. They hired uh, Dr. Jerry Ritchie to come. She came from Napa Valley College actually to come head the department and, you know, kind of strengthen the reputation of the of the program i would say would be kind of what her um what her main role there was uh but they had dr keith patterson there for a really long time and he has since passed away but um they've always had a strong foundation of of winemaking education and viticultural education but when i got there 15 years ago they really formalized it um but i would say that my own personal growth has always come more from working than from school. I don't know if that's just the way my brain is wired, but even though Cal Poly's um, their their slogan is "Learn by doing," there's just nothing like not having a summer vacation. Like there's nothing like working your butt off for a couple years at a time. And really getting into the seasonal rhythm of, of making wine and growing grapes. Um, but I always, I have a special place in my heart for Cal Poly, but my my work experience has always been a little bit more, I don't know, impactful, I think would be the word that I'm looking for. And I, So I, actually, that was going to be my next question is, you're in school and it's for the most part, I mean, you were making wine and everything, but it's kind of guided making wine right so it's more right. book smart or book knowledge than hands-on knowledge it's very limited in the spectrum of of that hands-on knowledge then you graduate and you're like oh welcome to the world i need to go get a job so what was your first job out of school yeah so i actually uh before i went to cal poly i worked for mcmanus for a whole summer and most of a harvest and then in college, I worked for Tolosa for multiple harvests. Oh, so that okay. that really helped me. Um, I mean, I, I did better in school because of those jobs. Like I got to actually see what the instructors were talking about. And we did make wine on campus, which was really important. Um, but after college, I wanted to move to Europe. And I really, really, really wanted to get a job in Spain. And I learned, yeah, I've, I have since visited and almost didn't come home, but um, it's awesome. But uh, this was 2011, so the global economy wasn't that good. And Europeans, European countries in general, I think, protect their workers a little bit more than we're used to. So just going to Europe, getting, getting a residency, getting the right um, visas and stuff, and then just getting a job. And expecting to get paid to do what plenty of people over there will do for just room and board is just not realistic. And I've had I've had friends later on go and, and get internships in Europe, but at the time I needed to get paid. I had student loans that were going to be due in six months. I I can't work for free. So I uh it was like right like maybe June of 2011. I was getting a little desperate. Europe wasn't working out. So I just got on winejobs.com like we all do and just sent out my resume to probably a dozen wineries, some of which I had heard of, some of which I hadn't. And just looking for a seller internship. That was really all I was looking for. And most of them were up here in the North Bay. So I would say like nine of the 12 were in Napa and then like three were in Sonoma. And um, I got a couple of job offers at multiple wineries, but one of them was Chapelet Winery in on Pritchard Hill in Napa. And um, I did not come from a wine consuming family that, I mean, we they drank wine, but they were not drinking Chapelet wine. Right. And so I, I actually had not heard of them. I felt kind of embarrassed to have not heard of them, but I can forgive myself for that now. Um, <laughs> So I worked the 2011 Harvest of Chapelet. I got the job. They told me in my face I got the job because of what I looks like I could do in the cellar. Uh, I could drag a hose, push a pump, wouldn't need any hand holding, wouldn't need any help moving heavy equipment. 
And I was like, you know what? I don't care. Like, I'll I'll do whatever you guys want okay. me to do. So um, I got like everyone else. I got laid off at the end at the end of harvest. It was a wild harvest, by the way. It was I was so excited to be there. Um, so excited to meet new people, moved out of San Luis Obispo, new town, new wines. This is Napa Valley. This is the show. Like I had my notebook. I was going to take copious notes, work hard, not take any days off. And it was the most depressing harvest that Napa's had since 1972. <laughs> and they just, the full-time staff there were just sad, just the whole time. It was, it was cold all summer long. It rained like, I want, I want to say like five inches, maybe in September. We had, you know, vineyards that weren't even done vineyards that weren't even done coloring up weren't even done through Verizon in September we're just getting rain dumped on top of them you're way past the point of being able to spray and it was just so much fun to see a professional organization just having to be humble and say like okay we're going to learn how to make wine in a wet year which they right. hadn't had in at that point, I think 1998, so like 13 years. Yes. And it wasn't nearly as bad as 2011 or 1972. So like, it was just, it was awesome to be there to see that. And, um, oh, I, I lost my train of thought. Oh, they, I got laid off at the end of harvest. And like, like most interns do. And uh, their enologist got a promotion up to Cade at, as assistant winemaker. And uh, his spot opened up and they offered it to me. So I, I took it and that was, at that point in time, that was my dream job. It was about 50% lab, 50% seller, all the tasting that I could handle, blending trials, all, all that stuff. So, so that was kind of, that was my first year out of college was um, moving to Napa and getting through that harvest and then just waiting on somebody to open up a spot for me. Oh, so, I mean, obviously you could do a lot more than just carry hoses and move things without they, that if they, they get offered you the job of enologist right off the bat. Yeah, you yeah, for yourself. sure. I had a lab, I had had a lab harvest under my belt. I had done plenty of wine chemistry in college. Um, and more importantly, though, they liked my personality. I got along really well with all the full-time staff there. So uh, I had got along really well with my fellow interns there as well. So it was, it was a good fit. I got really lucky that Steven moved on and went up to Cade cause I, I would have been sitting around for a while. It was, it was not, it was one of those times where like the economy was a little scary for people looking for a job, you know, mm -hmm. well, there weren't like help wanted signs everywhere, you know, like there are now. No. Right. Right. Now it's the opposite. Nobody wants to yeah. work. But what an educational experience, too, because, you know, if you think about it, if you go into uh, as an intern and everything is perfect, it's it's the best season ever. I don't know if you would learn as much in that internship because things just go smoothly. So there's no real opportunity to talk about how you can do this or why you do this or whatever. So, you know, the bad of it all really is probably the best educational experience you could have had. It definitely is. Yeah, absolutely. All all the bad, you remember the bad advantages more than you remember the good ones for right. sure. Um, a similar uh, scenario has played out with smoke taint and like in 2020, nobody was prepared for it. It was very, it was more devastating than 2011 for sure. Cause there were a lot of vineyards that just did not get picked, mm -hmm. but yeah, I mean, we, you adapt, you know, it's not something the good vintages kind of make themselves. You're not, you're just kind of walking a dog at that point, you know, a well, right. a well-trained dog. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. So that was around, that was 2011. Now McCann actually started in 2014. Yeah. Yeah. I was still, still enologist at Chapelet in 2014 and we crushed a Chardonnay, Syrah and Zinfandel in 2014. And was, do you have a state fruit at McCann or are you sourcing or a combination? Yeah, we don't own any vineyard. Yeah, we were, we purchased all of our grapes. Okay. And so 
how did your family, I mean, I guess mom working for Wenty kind of gave her some connections and you being in the industry had some connections, but how did you sort out your, your vineyards of where you want to source from? So I, I got the, my parents told me like, Hey, this is what we want to do with, with this money from the boat sale. Like I was saying earlier, and I was mortified by the way, because that's a lot more responsibility than I personally would give a 25 year old now. (laughs) Um, But they believed in me. So I, I, I definitely took the reins with the sourcing where we're going to make the wines, the style of the wines, excuse me. Um, That was, they, I mean, they were living in in Ripon still at the time. So, that was that was my job was to find the fruit, find the facility, handle all the all the winemaking, all the packaging, all the blending and bottling and all that stuff. So um since then we've all there's four of us now, McCann's that are involved, my two parents and my wife, Brittany. And we've all definitely staked, not really staked our claims, but kind of like we all bring strengths to our business. So uh, my mom now is like the administrative guru. She does all of our compliance. She has since the beginning, all of our, all of our compliance, which is a thankless job. It's just a thankless job. It's something that I would gladly pay a lot of money to not have to do. Um, She does a lot of sales. She does a lot of direct sales mostly. Okay. my wife is more of the marketing, like sales and marketing type person. She She's a director of sales and marketing at Hudson Vineyards and Carneros. She brings a wealth of knowledge on making your brand look pretty and professional and prim and proper. Um, she's been she's been all over now from Meadowood in uh, St. Helena, the hotel. She went from there to Titus Vineyards to Kipchandi which is a cold winery in Yonville. And she really has like this whole perception knowledge, I call it, where it's like how you want your brand to be perceived. Okay. And you have to, you have to do that. You know, that's, that's her thing. Um, and then my dad just loves being around the, the business. He really does. When we had a tasting room, which we closed down two years ago, um, he built it, you know, I mean, that wow. was his, that was his, uh, contribution was just the three of us kind of telling him what we wanted it to look like and then him actually doing it you know and um he's retired now from his full-time job so he's going to be hauling grapes for me this year and all that stuff but um our our jobs are all definitely they play to our strengths i would say division of labor to everybody's strength yeah yeah and so you you said you had a tasting room but you closed it down where where was the tasting room? If you don't own vineyards, where was the actual tasting room? Yeah, that's a good question. We had a tasting room in Livermore. Uh, okay. My parents were living and working in Livermore uh, up until t- two years ago. Two, yeah, two and a half years ago. And um, we, it just wasn't working. My wife and I were living here in Napa, working here in Napa. Um, you know, a 40-hour work week is always a treat up around these parts so like to to do that and then to have to go run a tasting room in livermore and people didn't get that we only had one or two livermore wines but we have a tasting room in livermore it's just it it was such a convoluted back to that thing about perception knowledge um we were not projecting what we wanted our brand to be perceived as so it just not only that it just wasn't it wasn't working It, it wasn't profitable so we took advantage of COVID and, um, you know, it was closed down anyway. And even though we were surviving, we weren't, we weren't going out of business or anything. We were surviving, but we were just like, let's take this as an opportunity to just, let's let a Livermore brand take this space and we'll move our brand to Napa. And we did. And we are at a collective now in okay. Close to downtown Napa, we're one of 14 vintners 
at a place called Feast It Forward. As soon as you said, uh, I, I was like, I bet you're at Feast It Forward. That yeah, that seems yeah. to be a, a very in spot, a very cool spot. It's a cool, it's a cool spot. Yeah, it's a cool spot. Katie Schaefer, the owner there, is something else. Um, you can't, you you wouldn't believe the energy that she has in, in, in her daily life and in her business. It's unbelievable. Um, it's a cool, eclectic, something for everyone tasting room um it's big now she's got two different buildings and like a whole entertainment area between those two buildings um so we've been there for two years and my parents moved up here to napa full-time two years ago so we're we're a napa based brand now so we've uh no plans to open up a tasting room on our own um kind of been there done that for the time being but if if the right opportunity ever came um, I would definitely entertain it. And now back back to those vineyards. What about, well, let, let's talk about how the reason why I contacted you in the first place was because you're Rhone centric. Right, and, yeah. you know, there's lots of wineries <clears throat> who are Bordeaux centric um, and there's fewer that are Rhone, but I find that a lot of the Rhone people then, oh, I'll just throw in a Cab Franc or I'll just, throw, you know, like they're like, no, yeah. I th- you know, I'll, I'm going to cross this over. So what about Rhone varieties is what called to you that this is what you want McCann to focus on? Yeah, it's really it really came down to the red wines that I enjoy. Mo- so I'm going to talk mostly about red wines. I know we're going to talk about the Viognier in a little bit, but the red wines that I enjoy drinking the most are Grenache, Syrah, Morved, blends of those three. Um, you know, Petit Syrah, which is an adopted Rhone varietal in, in the New World. It's not really a Rhone varietal, but you know, Carignan, Cunois, uh in Europe, my some of my favorite Rhone reds that I've had are from Chateauneuf du Pop or Gigondas or Vaqueras. Um please don't quiz me on brand names because when they're French, they just they're in one ear and out. You the know other. the region. That's all that matters. Yeah. yeah. It came down to that. And then also our first two vintages, we we weren't only Rhones. We were Rhone. We always had a Syrah, which is my favorite red variety. We always had a Syrah and then we had Chardonnay and Zinfandel, excuse me. The um, the Chardonnays, like when you get out in the market and you're trying to sell Chardonnay, it could be, it could be the most beautiful Chardonnay in the world, but you're, you're fighting a battle against absolute giants. Right. You know, I mean, it's David and Goliath isn't even close to the proper um, like analogy. It's just not right. even close. You're fighting, you know, you're trying to sell chardonnay at you know maybe twenty dollars wholesale when it's a thirty dollar retail wine you're trying to make your margins work and you know a buyer is looking at you and saying well you know i'm getting rombauer for not much more than that you know and like what who are you compared to them and it's just it is what it is la crema is going to kick your butt every time um, I mean, there's a, there's a million of them. I, I I'm not going to give them any more press than they need, but we did that for two years. And uh, I just kind of realized like, Hey, I'm not having a lot of fun making Chardonnay. I make Chardonnay all day at my day job. And then I'm going out to the market on the weekends and I'm not selling it. So what's the point? And it, you know, I thought about it. My wife was talking to me like, what kind of wines do you want to make? Like, you're going to have an easier time selling wines that you are excited about. So I was like, man, I would love to do rounds. And um, in 2016, after after two full vintages of doing other things in 2016, we just went for it and haven't looked back. Haven't haven't made a non-Rhone other than Petit Syrah since. All right. And so in, on your website, you have that, um, uh, that Syrah, the, how, how, I guess the United States feels about Syrah is shameful, like the respect it gets. So, oh, it's terrible. It's worse than Merlot. Like Merlot went through from sideways came out in 2004 and it's just now coming back. So it's been a 15 year battle, a little longer for Merlot. And Merlot never really went away like Syrah. I mean, Syrah has been just battered in the like nationally 
as a as a serious wine in non wine producing states, Syrah is just it's just not even thought of. Um, Cabernet is king, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir is getting there. Um, Bordeaux, you know, Meritage blends, Bordeaux blends, but it's really taken the Central Coast maturing as a wine growing region, getting some serious money producing those wines, getting serious money selling those wines nationally that's gotten Rhone's going. And even still, Syrah is just, the reputation is just not, I think, where it should be. Um, whether or not in my lifetime it ever comes back, I don't know. We make a small amount of that wine because it's a hand sell. It's, it, you know, we do wholesale a little bit of it, but it's mostly us showing customers the the wine and then buying it from us. Um, it's not a wine that on a wine shop wine shelf, unless you have a wine steward who who loves it, is going to sell that wine. It's just not one of those. It's not going to sell itself. And it's just not. Why do you think that? Do you think that it's a confusion of of the wine drinker, like between Syrah, Shiraz, Petite Syrah? You know, like I mean, you know, Petite Syrah is its own entity, but you know, I mean, I absolutely adore Syrah. I think it, I think it's a phenomenal varietal. I love what it, you know, what it puts in the glass, how, how versatile it is and the body of it. And, you know, there's so much offering to it. Um, yeah. but I, I, to be 100% honest, I didn't realize there was a, a bad thought about, about Syrah. Like I, you know, I, yeah, I'm always I mean, like, have yeah, you tried to sell go, it? No, we don't make we don't make a yeah, Syrah, yeah, but that, I I understand the feeling because we make a Chenin Blanc and it's kind of it's kind Chen, of this Chenin Blanc. There used to be thousands of acres of Chenin Blanc in Napa Valley. It's uh, to my knowledge, Chapelet is the only Chenin vineyard that I can think of. Um, but there are many varieties that just go through. They go through these ups and downs of popularity, and it's usually predicated on there's like a tipping point that happens where more of that variety is grown in a spot where it shouldn't be grown. Right. So then the market's perception of that variety is just a negative one. Right. Um, which is really, you know, had, which is what really happened to Merlot. I mean, you can, sadly, yes, sideways did, you know, hit Merlot hard, but for a very wrong reason, but the fact that there was so much Merlot being grown atrociously at that point, that it was easy to hear what you wanted to hear in that movie and go, I'm never drinking Merlot, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, I honestly think there's just been more bad Syrah being made. Um, And I don't think that that's the case anymore. I think enough of it has been ripped out because it's not popular anymore. And then now we're kind of left with mostly the good stuff. quality vineyard, quality vineyards and in quality sites grown by quality growers, you know, and it's up to us, the bakers and the producers to change the public perception. And I'll tell you like, well, I go to Paso every year in February um, for the run Rangers experience and Syrah is the most expensive wine on those lists. Yeah. I know Paso is trying really hard to um, bring Cabernet to the kind of into their region and and do, you know, do that thing. But I see high quality Rhone producers making really high quality Syrahs or Syrah based blends. Right. Um, and they're successful. So, you know, I think there is hope. And now a word from our sponsor. Exploring the Wine Glass is brought to you by Dracaena Wines. Dracaena Wines is an artisan winery located in Paso Robles, California. They have been producing wine since 2013. Their first vintage began with one wine, their classic Cabernet Franc, which received a 91 in Wine Enthusiast. Since then, they have increased production as well as expanded their portfolio, have received many accolades, including multiple double gold medals and consistent 90-plus ratings. Visit their website, www.dracinawines.com, or use the link in the show notes to schedule a private tasting and to see their entire portfolio. 
purchase your award-winning wine, and let Dracaena Wines help turn your moments into great memories. So as a winemaker, how does Syrah grow in the vineyard? Is it an easy vine? I, you know, you're talking about one of the comments you have is that terroir is more than soil and weather. Okay. So how, like, how does that play into effect of how you get your fruit in terms of, and process it and things like that? Yeah, so Syrah, you know, most of the Rhone varieties um, are hyper vigorous varieties. So they okay. they have evolved in places that are hot, rocky, dry. Um, a lot of the Rhone varieties actually come from Spain. Syrah is not one of them. Syrah is from the northern Rhone, um, but it's it evolved in a tough spot. So it needs uh, if you plant it on soil that has nutrients and water holding capacity and things like that it's going to grow as much as it wants so um planting it in the right site is really really important i've seen a lot of nice raw vineyards in napa on some of the more rocky ground um if you plant it on kind of forgiving ground with a vigorous rootstock that can become a problem i've seen syrah just completely coming down over the wire and just doing kind of like an old California sprawl, oh. but not on the fruit wire. It's coming down over the top of the wire. You oh, know, it's okay. same with, same with Grenache. Grenache can be just a bear, just with how much it'll grow. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to plant Syrah, you, part of the terroir is you doing your job. And um, we have been so lucky to work with only top-notch Syrah growers in Napa that I've never really run into that problem. Um, I've been lucky with all the growers that I've worked with and I, it's, there's nothing like working with a good grower and there's nothing like working with a bad one. <laughs> and um, you can really tell the difference. And the three Syrah vineyards that we've worked with in Napa have all been really, really, really nice. So they all know what they're doing. They all handle their canopies well. They don't make bad decisions with the planting. No one's ever put, you know, a thirsty rootstock on really heavy or really, you know, light right. soil. Right. You know. And now you actually, you have um, vineyards that you source from in Napa, Russian River, Valley Livermore, and Shenandoah. So yeah. are you, are you harvesting fruit from multiple um regions you know so like are you getting syrah from napa syrah from livermore syrah from shandoan and you're making your blends of syrah that way or are you growing uh contracting for you know syrah in napa and grenache in russian river and you know Viognier and Shenandoah. Yeah, the the latter for sure. It's okay. um yeah, we're doing specific wines, varietal wines from the different AVAs. So the Syrah comes from Napa, the Viognier comes from Russian River, a vineyard called Katie's Corner, owned by the Kundi family. Really, really oh. awesome vineyard. Um, and then I get my Grenache rose grapes from Sierra Foothills. Uh, our current release red Grenache is from the same vineyard. But uh, in 20 and in 21, we did not get those grapes for red Grenache. So I've moved on to a vineyard I'm going to be working with just this year for the first time called Zabala in Arroyo Seco okay. for red Grenache. Um, so yeah, it's more, it's, it's, I'm not making like a California blend out of anything. It's mainly pulling specific varieties from specific AVAs. Okay. And so I think this is a good segue for the Viognier. So this is oh Katie's Corner, okay, the uh, vineyard in the Russian River Valley. So 2021, okay. So tell us about what you like or don't and don't like because nothing is ever perfect. So what you like and you don't like about Viognier? Oh yeah, you know Viognier, is, Viognier much like Syrah, just planted in spots that it shouldn't be planted in. It's a uh, northern round white. It's not a southern round white. And it somehow ends up in these really hot areas. 
of California, and I'm not, I would never name names, but um, it's just one of those things where warm climate beignet, I'm sure there are some nice ones out there, but it just doesn't, it doesn't do it for me. So when I found one, I actually stumbled into this vineyard originally working with it for Chardonnay. Uh, I got the 2015 Chardonnay for McCann family from this vineyard. And um, when I, we decided to switch to Rhone's, I found out they had Viognier and it was an easy, an easy switch. But it's in a warmer spot in Russian River. So it's, I mean, it's cool climate, but it's the fog burns off earlier in the day than it does in like the more West County parts of, of Russian River. This is kind of Northeast part of the AVA okay. uh, near the town of Windsor. Um, it's like I said, owned by the Coondies, farmed by the Duttons. And the Duttons oh. are kind of Russian River royalty okay. mm -hmm. up here. <clears throat> they have their own brand, Dutton Goldfield, but they are a much larger grape growing operation than their wine brand is. Um, and the vineyard's just awesome. It's on quadrilateral cordon. Everything is perfect. Like I was saying about the the vigor of, of Rhone varieties, uh, one way to kind of tame that is by adding more cordon. So instead of having two, they have four. And the canopy is always balanced. The fruit is always just perfect. It's, everything sets up well. If there's any clumping, they'll declump it. Uh, you know, there's never any excess fruit on the vine. Um, it's on a really nice aspect, kind of on a mid slope. And yeah, I mean, it just makes, I pick it at Chardonnay bricks. Okay. So I pick it at like, you know, 23 and a half to 24 and a half bricks. Um, potential alcohols are usually, you know, mid, mid to high 14s. And then I adjust it down to mid four, mid to low 14s. Okay. And yeah. So I'm just, sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you. So for my listeners, can you explain what you mean by I adjust it? Because you're the first person who, who has said that. So. Yeah, so totally, this is totally above board and legal. Um, mm -hmm. We can adjust the alcohol in California um, by adjust the potential alcohol right. before fermentation or during fermentation by adding water. So, um, but that's yeah, important. If, yeah. It has to be at that time. You can't do it afterwards. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've never heard of anybody adding water after fermentation, but I'm sure it's been done. Um, and yeah, so you know, if I pick it a little bit riper than uh, than the desired potential alcohol, which is usually the case, because sometimes the grapes just aren't quite there yet, okay. um, even though the sugar is there, because you know <clears throat> there's photosynthesis happening independent of the flavor development in the grapes. So regardless of what the sugar is telling you, you might not have the flavors that you want right. that are going to end up in the resulting wine. So. Yeah. And it's never, it's never very much, you know, it's, I, I, the percent, I can't tell you exactly what the percentage is, but it's low to knock it down. I don't want to have a resulting wine be too high in alcohol because it really, really kind of throws the wine off balance, but I might want some of those more riper stone fruit flavors. Well, um, you, you've like, accomplished that. This is, yeah, thank this you. is beautiful. It has, um, to me, Viognier has um, a floral aspect to it uh that it makes it a delicate on the nose and then the stone fruits come the stone fruits come out and then yeah. i find that there's two types of viognier glycerol-y like riesling type viognier and then a little bit um more of the of a medium bodied wine that that doesn't coach your tongue with that glycerol. And I don't, neither is, you know, better or worse or whatever. My palate is this, this has, this has, um, a slight amount of glycerol to it. Cause it does allow it. It's kind of a medium bodied wine. Um, it's definitely not full bodied, um, medium bodied wine, but it coats, it coats my palate, coats my tongue, but not with that glycerol weighing that I get, in a in a, some right, Viognier's. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, I think that glycerol character is the the site. I think that's the warmer climate, Viognier's. It's a really, really tight, dry, thick-skinned cluster. Um, 
our juice yields are 135 gallons per ton if we're lucky. And like Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, 165, 170 gallons per ton. My Grenache Rosé is even more. So you can you can kind of get an idea of just how dry that cluster right. is. Right. And when you're squeezing that thick skin, that's just, there's no juice in there. You're just squeezing it. You're getting a lot of those uh, seed and skin oils out, out of the, right. out of the, out of the grape. So I think that's, that, that's probably the main difference between a cool climate and a warm climate. Yeah, yeah. And then when, with the, with the thick skins at like, what bar are you pressing this at? Are you doing it at multiple? Yeah, there's stages. I go all the way up to two bars, but okay. there's stages. So that, you know, it squeezes it at 0.2, I think it's 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, all the way up to two. I think it's all in even numbers. And in between each one, it'll deflate and, and rotate to break up the right. the must. And do you keep those, do you keep those pressings separate or do they all? No. Okay, so they all come together. No, yeah, I I, I include on whites all of my press press juice into the main law. I don't, I don't keep it separate. The, the press juice is always pretty good. I've always thought, um, I think in lower quality vintages, it might make sense, like in a smoke year, especially it might yeah. make sense to keep your hard press separate, but, um, no, I've, I've always kept them together. Okay. So now you, you've pressed them and you go into, uh, fermentation. Uh, are you, are you inoculating? Yeah, so it goes, yeah, it goes to tank first to settle and then we, uh, two days yeah, later, we rack and then barrel <laughs> yeah. down. And I am inoculating. I use okay. a yeast that I've been a big fan of for a while now called QA23. It's a Scott Labs product. Um, well, Scott Labs sells it. I'm sure another yeast manufacturer makes it, but it's a white wine yeast. <clears throat> it, um, it preserves kind of those estuary characters, terpenes that a lot of aromatic whites have that people like. And it uh, never produces hydrogen sulfide, which is that rotten egg character that right. yeast will produce that we can, we know how to handle that, but I'd rather it not be there in the first place. Right. So um, I've used QA23 on my, my white wines and rosés for a long time. And I've, I've been a big fan of it. I'm probably due for a trial try something new, but, hey, um, you know what, in we'll my see. opinion, if, it, if something's not broken, don't try to fix it. Right. I, this, yeah. is, this has beautiful aromatics. Um, I wish I would stop saying beautiful, but, but that is really what, what it is. Um, Thank I'm you. sitting here, the people who are listening can't, can't see this, but I'm sitting here and I'm just like sniffing, you know, as you're talking, it is, it is so beautiful. The, Thank you. the stones, the the stone fruit is the is after and that's what i like about well-made wines sometimes wines um and the warmer climate you know everything is there and you can't quite distinguish what it is it's just like yeah there's something there uh and this you know when you first bring it up there's the there's the the feminineness of a Viognier to it. And then you continue and, and there's more, the stone fruit comes in. And then there's actually even a little bit of tropical in there, you know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, there, I mean, it, it does have the banana character, especially yes. uh, Viognier when it's fermenting is like all banana. It's just like banana, 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 banana. And then in the wine, you have more of the spring flowers, stone fruit, apricot, peach, all that stuff. And then that banana kind of comes back, I'd say around the holidays. We always, we always ferment, uh, excuse me, always bottle this in spring. Okay. I'd say the banana comes back around Thanksgiving. Um, so it's a fun wine. It's a fun wine to age, um, a fun wine to make. I, I barrel ferment it, which is cool. Okay. That was my next question is how do you ferment it? Yeah, barrel fermented. I make it a lot like I make Chardonnay, but there are two very distinct differences. I don't put any new oak on it, and I don't put any part of the wine through ML. So okay. um, everything else is pretty close to the same. It's, uh, you know, barrel fermented at what I would call a warm-ish fermentation temperature, low 60s, 
Okay. Uh, it's hard in any cellar to keep the fermentation temperature below that in barrel. Um, but we at, at William Harrison, where I make the wines, we have a really nice, a really nice refrigeration system that keeps the cellar cold. Uh, but 61, 62 is kind of where it ends up at. And um, I stir the lees after fermentation. I stir the lees every two weeks Gives to the body for three months. Okay. So there's there's definitely there's some that, nanoproteins yeah. and, and there's and that medium body in there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then um, so it's neutral oak and then you're bottling. Uh, so this is 2021. So you you do release it re relatively quickly. Yeah, I'd like to get it out in for April release. So we bottle it usually in February or March. I try to get a six month aging on it, and then and middle to end of April, it's ready for prime time. And what would you say are your favorite pairings to go with this Viognier? Oh gosh, yeah, that you know it's it's a it's an elegant wine, like you said, but it is a fuller at least a medium bodied wine in the palate. Yeah. So it can stand up to some richer foods. My wife made a, uh, my wife made a risotto not too long ago that required white wine and she put it in the dish <gasps> and then we drank it um, with the dish. And that was something else. Uh, yeah. I, you know, anything. I'm not going to lie. I would not put this in my risotto. <laughs> I, I, ha I have other wines that, that. I'm like, oh, I need a cup of wine. Yeah, I'll do that one in there. I wouldn't put this in there. I wouldn't waste. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wouldn't waste my cup in in there. She gets it for free, so that is true. Yeah. <laughs> that is true. I can see risotto with it, um, and I can see some cheeses with it. Um, I'm, I'm the horrible food person. Uh, I'm like the only wine educator, wine whatever. Uh, wine maker, everything that does horrible with food pairings because I don't eat anything. I'm very, very specific in what I eat. But risotto it can be on my table any day of the week. Um, but I have a, I have a similar problem. But I'm the opposite. I will pair anything with anything, and okay. um, I just it doesn't bother me to pair to have pair a, an improper pairing. Um, I don't think that like Zeus is going to strike me with a thunderbolt, you know. Um, but yeah, God, Viognier, that Viognier in particular, we have it with brunch a lot. If you're having any kind of okay. any kind of late breakfast, early lunch, right. goes well. And, you know, it doesn't it it doesn't have toast in it. Like I the the lees to me is giving it a body. Not the, you know, people think stirring a lees or whatever, you know, champagne, that toastiness. It doesn't have that. It, the the lees is giving it the body, but I can envision it with something that's toasty. That's, sure. you know, yeah. that type, that type of, of meal. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I can see that. And then I'm going to ask, is there, is there any RS in here? No. It's completely bone dry. dry? Yeah. Like bone dry. Okay. Yeah. Bone it, dry. It, it, tastes dry so it's it's a ripeness it's the ripeness of the of the fruit that's in there um but to to me it had it, it i wouldn't call it off dry it's dry but to my palate it tastes like there's a little r a little rs in there but not to the point where i would classify yeah. it as as off dry yeah that's uh that's one of the things that i kind of the, the school of winemaking that I come from, like if you can, if you can make a dry wine, give you a second guess as to whether or not it's sweet, you've kind of done your job. Oh, um, well then I will give you a standing ovation on that. Thank you. Yeah. So that like with white wine, it can be a little more difficult, but with red wine, um, if you can make a person think that a big tannic red wine has any kind of sugar in it and it's dry, then you've really helped to balance the palate on that wine. You know, the tannin okay. is not out in front of anything. Um, you know, you've really knitted the tannins together, as I like to say. Right. It is, 
it will be consumed later tonight. I guarantee right it. It is. And what does this what does this retail for? That's 40. Oh, okay. People buy 40. That's it's it tastes much higher. It tastes much higher than <laughs> thank 40. you. Thank you. Okay. So I just want to say, like, what what about well, you said that you like the wines of the Rhone Valley. Have you had the pleasure of visiting the Rhone Valley? I haven't, but a uh, coincidence that you asked, next July, so just about a little less than a year from now, uh, the four of us and my newborn baby. Well, oh, no, congratulations. Won't be a Thank you. He, he will be, uh, he'll be seven months when we go. Uh, we are hosting a wine cruise on the Rhone. Oh, through the so, winery? Yeah. So like wine club members can join in or? It's not just Michael members. It's okay. anybody. Anybody can buy a cabin and go. Uh, we're going to be on a boat for seven days from Lyon to some town in the south of France. I, I forget the name. I forget where we take where we get off the boat at. But it's seven days with like wine related excursions. And then we're hosting. I'm hosting a dinner that's going to feature our wines. Um, and then we're going to turn it into a vacation after that. But um, but no, I'm I'm really looking forward to going. Chateau Neuf du Pop is a place that I've had my eye on for more than ten years. So the whole thing is going to be pretty cool. I I've never been either, but it just looks amazing there. It looks amazing. Um, yeah, I've been to been to Paris and uh, went to a couple of wine shops in Paris and Chateau Neuf, Gigondas, Vaqueras, a lot of Rasto. Rasto wines are a lot more affordable and, you know, they're down the street practically. Um, they're a, a much lighter style than, than Chateau Neuf du Pops are, but um, of the Rhone wines that we saw in Paris, a lot of, a lot of those. So a lot of Cote de Rhone too. You can get a Cote de Rhone, you can get a good Cote de Rhone in France for like eight euro a bottle, wow. nine yeah. euro a bottle. I tell people all the time that if you're at a restaurant and you know you want a good wine, but you have no clue what you're looking at, take a Cote de Rhone. You know, that I probably not gonna go wrong. Yeah, it's it's a pretty safe bet. And it's usually, like you said, not one of the higher priced ones on the no. list. No. Uh, It'd be equivalent of in California, I would say a Cote de Rhone would be the equivalent of probably a Central Coast ABA. Okay. You know, it's it's a pretty big it's a pretty big appellation. So mm -hmm. they're pulling, they're pulling from a lot of uh, different regions. Regions, right? So I would, I would say that that would be a, a decent guess okay. or a decent analogy. Um, not, I mean, Central Coast AVA wines are a lot more than 10 euro, but right. um, <laughs> they're in, in Europe, it's a little different buying wine, but I would say that would be a good, a good analogy. Right. Absolutely. And then I just want to bring up your wine club because I think it's hysterical. The name, I love it. So it's called the Final Final Club. And yeah. I just want you to explain to the listeners yeah. and viewers where that name came from because I absolutely love it. Yeah, right. I got uh, my my dad's mom, my grandmother is 81. And my whole life, she's, she's from Wisconsin. She has a good time. When, like when we're when we're all together as family, like grandma's there to party and she's there, she's there to have a good time. And, um, she has her final Manhattan and then she'll have her final, final Manhattan. So it's kind of like two is, or, you know, two is one and one is done kind of thing. So, you know, I don't know. We have with our, with our brand, it's all McCann family, right? Like everything has some kind of a familial tie uh, into the, into the brand some way. Like we have a wine called morning glass and it's a red blend. And we got that name. Cause when we used to take this lake vacation, we would call the lake at in the morning, morning glass. Morning like we're going to go get the morning glass ski run going, you know? So when we wanted to name the club, something like everyone just has like, you know, wine club, you know, or family club, or you, you'll come up with some name. I'm like, well, I want to come up with something that will 
remind my remind us or you know have a story to tell right so i just thought why don't we call it the final final club <laughs> and uh, of course she got a big kick out of it and um but yeah that's that's the genesis grammatish with her final final man i i think that is hysterical i absolutely love it and we yeah, have she's a funny lady. um we we have uh a friend of the family who has now who has now passed but years ago he used to have a final final beer so not a, not as elaborate as the Manhattan, but he would he would drink beer and he would smoke like a chimney, man. That he like it was alternating hands, you know. But yeah. um, he he would drink all day and then he's like, "Here's my final beer," and that was usually around I don't know seven ish at night or whatever. And then he would finish that beer and then he'd go get one more. And we're like, "But but that was your final beer." He's like, "This is my final final beer." The final yeah. final, yeah. <laughs> so. All right. I the don't final, think he final, actually said final. I think he said second final. He might have been the second final, but it was the same concept. Yeah. The final final has gotten me in trouble a couple of times, but uh, it's all good. <laughs> it's it's always like the final, final ski run, right? That gets right. you in trouble, right? It's, yeah. You know, it's it's always that final, final. But uh, so thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for sharing this Viognier. It is outrageous. I, uh, my husband and I are going bowling tonight. We're in a little bowling league and, but this is going to be how we decompress after bowling. Cause we need to decompress after, right. after yeah. our bowling league. So it is absolutely stunning. And I, I am a huge Viognier fan. So I, I'm a little critical when it comes to the, <laughs> when it comes to Viognier, you know, my husband will be like, this is fine. And I'm like, no, 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 you have that one. I'm not, but this one, I'm going to drink more of this one than he will, because thank you. Thank I'm you going to so be much. pouring my glass heavier than his. <laughs> it's going to be like thank one you. for you and two yeah. for me type thing. So, but thank you. <laughs> um, and thank where, you. where can people find the Kane family? Yeah. The Kane family sellers.com is our website. We're on instagram and i believe twitter i don't do any of the social so i, I know you are definitely instagram because that's where i contacted you guys okay yeah so we're on instagram i am also on instagram uh chuck.mccann.wine um i'm a little more active I, I do a lot more posting on like my personal life on my personal okay. instagram but uh my mom runs our our McCann family Instagram. And, uh, I do take a lot of photos mostly during harvest and bottling and stuff like that and send them to her. And we're usually up to date on what we're, what we got going on in the, and in, in the winery and in the vineyard and all that stuff. So. And if they're interested in that river cruise, is that you, they can find that information out on your website also. Definitely. I believe on the website and definitely just DM my mom at McCann family sellers Instagram and she can, hook you up. I am terrible. I forget the name of the company that's doing the, that has the boat, but it's supposed to be a good time. They've, they, uh, are not new. They've been doing it for a while and I know other wine brands that have done it and they say it's awesome. So, um, yeah, if, if you can swing it, I would say if you're into Rhone wines, I would say it's going to be a good time. Okay. And then finally you are at Feast It Forward in Napa. Yeah. And how can, can, does it require a tasting or uh, a tasting? Does it require an appointment or are you doing walk-ins also? Yeah. So Feast of Forward's pretty cool. There's kind of two different ways that you could go about it. If you just walked into Feast of Forward on any day that they're open, um, you can get three of our wines on the list by the glass or by the bottle or by the flight. And if you called us, and made a reservation through our website. I believe we use Talk T O C K. Okay. Um, we can host you at Feast of Forward, and we could pour you through the rest of our wines. Okay, so that that is a kind of a cool concept of Feast of Forward. It that yeah. that you real you know a lot of a lot of uh, collaboratives. You know, it's like you know, like in Paso, we have Paso Underground. And that's a collaborative, but it's one big room. And then there's winery A, winery B, winery C, winery D. And they all are very oh, yeah. independent. And Feast of Forward is a, is a different concept. It's you really yeah. are together. So, yeah. and do, do they have their own website? Can somebody 
They do. They okay, do. So I don't know if she takes reservations on there. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, if you wanted to set up a, re- a time, I would definitely do that through us. Through you. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. And they can do that online at McCann Family Wines or McCann.com. Uh, McCann Family Sellers. McCann Family Sellers.com. So yeah, yeah. thank you, Chuck, for coming on and sharing your wine and sharing your knowledge and everything Rhone centric. I absolutely you. love it. So thank you very much. And I will say, I don't really have anything left because I consumed it, but I will raise what's left of my little glass and say, Slancha. Awesome. Thank you. This has been another episode of Exploring the Wine Glass. Thanks for listening. If you have suggestions on what topics you would like me to discuss, please reach out on social media. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook as Exploring the Wine Glass. I am also on LinkedIn as Lori Hoytbud. Of course, you can always email me at exploringthewineglass at gmail.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find me more easily. And most importantly, tell your wine-loving friends, because if you like the podcast, they will too. Music is Wine by Kevens. Until next week, slancha. Your all the lovely bar